The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the witness that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So if necessary, we uh, have to use 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, or that means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to confess sin if necessary so that we can be restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and advance to spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity and privilege to study your word, that throughout all of the ages of the church age, all of these centuries, there have been few believers who have had all that we have, all the privileges, the freedoms we have in this nation to study your word, the opportunities, the vast uh, resources we have available to us to study your word today, the recovery of many ancient documents through archaeology, and the vast accumulation of theological doctrinal knowledge as a result of the studies of those who have gone before. And yet, Father, too often we take this lightly and we do not make this a priority. Yet this is what determines our eternal destiny in heaven as believers, our position in the millennial kingdom and in eternity, our rewards, our roles and responsibilities. It is through our advance in spiritual growth based on knowledge and application of doctrine that we glorify you in time and glorify you before the angels. Father, we thank you that we can worship you through the study of your word, the highest form of worship, and that we can glorify you as we take in your word and that the Holy Spirit uses it to advance us to spiritual maturity. We pray that we can concentrate and focus on your word this morning and that we would be responsive to its challenge. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John. We are studying the first epistle of John, probably written to the Ephesian church where he had pastored, or at least to churches in the surrounding area. It would have served as an, what was called an encyclical. 
That is an epistle that was not written to a particular congregation, but was written to a group of congregations to be passed from one church to another so that they would read it and it would deal with problems that perhaps all were facing. Now, as we begin our study, we have spent three weeks in introduction to understand the background, the orientation of this epistle, and then last time we got into the first four verses. It is important for us to understand that before we can apply the Word, we have to make sure we properly understand what it says. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and so therefore it is best to study the New Testament in the original languages in which it was written, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. And there are times when we get into some passages that are extremely difficult to understand. The Greek of 1 John 1, 1 through 4 is so complex that there are commentaries, uh, commentators, who have written that the syntax of the first four verses of John is so complex it's almost meaningless. That, of course, comes from the pen of a liberal who doesn't believe in the inerrancy or infallibility of Scripture. It is not meaningless. It is designed that way to indicate a number of things, one of which is emphasis. The emphasis is in verse 1. That's why the sentence is so complicated, is he throws the object of the main verb into the beginning, and it is an object that includes four relative clauses listed in verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and our hands handled. Concerning the word of life. Now, last time we begin a look at the problems in understanding this verse grammatically in the, in the Greek. One reason I go into this, there is at least one man in the congregation who's studying Greek and who is a seminary student and he needs to learn some of these things. We also have three or four seminary students who are out there uh, listening to tapes and they need this information. And it's also because you cannot accurately apply the word if it is not accurately interpreted. And you can't accurately interpret the word if it's not first accurately translated. So there are times when we have to, perhaps it may seem to some of you, that I belabor the point in dealing with the original language, but for there are those who need that detail for one reason or another. And so if you don't need it, you can just relax and enjoy it and kind of push that to the side of your plate and wait for the uh, soup or the uh, mashed potatoes or grits or whatever that doesn't need quite the chewing to uh, come along for your nourishment. But we are going, I'm going to make some points and try to pull this together a little bit this morning. Let's look at these first four verses. They're up on the uh, overhead, and you can see that in the New American Standard Translation, verse 2 is offset by M dashes. The M dash is that long dash at the end of verse 1 and the end of verse 2, indicating that this is viewed as a parenthesis. It's a, it's a diversion in the main thought. It's an important diversion. You can understand the, the flow grammatically by taking verse 2 out. But verse 2 is important to properly interpret verse 1. It gives us the clues to understand what he means when he ends verse 1 by saying, concerning the word of life. 
he then tells us what that is. It shouldn't be translated, as I said last time, Word of Life, capital W. It should be translated the message of life. Because when he begins to, when John begins to explain to us what that phrase means, he doesn't focus on word logos. See, in the in the Gospel of John, the first verses begin. In the beginning was the word. The word there is a technical title for the Lord Jesus Christ, from the Greek word logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. There he's talking about Jesus Christ under the title Lagos, but just because you see the Greek word Lagos doesn't mean it's being used in a technical sense in relation to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the person of life here. He's not talking about the Lagos of life. He's talking about the message of life. If he were talking about the Lagos, then verse 2 would expand the meaning of Lagos, defining it. But Lagos isn't the subject of verse 2. Life is the subject of verse 2. He says, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to you. Now that tells us that the life he's talking about is intimately connected with Jesus Christ because it was with the Father and was manifested to us. And I said last time that we have to remember that In the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, the man is the message, and the message is the man, and you can't talk about the man without talking about the message, and you can't talk about the message without talking about the man, but you can talk about either the man or the message, but the other is always present. And his focus here is on the message. It's the message of life which was exemplified for us at the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his life that he was qualified, his perfect life, sinless life, that he was qualified to go to the cross, and in his life that he not only fulfilled the obligations of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, but he also set the precedent and pattern for the spiritual life of the church age. That is the basis for the abundant life, which is the the message of this epistle. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came not like the thief to destroy, but I came to give life, that is salvation, the entrance into eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone, and to give life abundantly, that is the spiritual life. There are two different lives in John 10.10. John 10.10 outlines life. You get life by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. John 20.30 and 31, we studied again and again and again. You should know it by heart where John said, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in His name. These are written refers to these signs. There are eight signs in the Gospel of John. But John 13 through 17 is not part of that sign section. John 13 through 17 is the upper room discourse. And in the upper room discourse, before Jesus Christ went to the cross, He was addressing the eleven disciples. Judas has been removed in terms of the spiritual life, the abundant life. 1 John is John's commentary now and his expansion of the themes in the Upper Room Discourse. It is addressed to believers to teach them how to live that abundant life which was exemplified by Christ. That is the message of life. And it's exemplified by the one who was life. So he goes on in verse 2 to say, The life was manifested. We have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So eternal life should be capitalized. 
John 1, 1 John 1, 3, what we have seen and heard, that he picks up the thought that he interrupted back in verse 1. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you may also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things, these things refers to what he has just said in 1 through 3, these things we write so that, in other words, for the purpose that our joy might be brought to completion. Now, if we look at this, to understand the thought flow a little better, I've taken verse 2 out, and we just have it set up on the overhead in verses 1 and verse 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you. That's the main verb. It's so important when you study Scripture with these long sentences to find out what the main thought is and then build from there. We proclaim to you. Also, that you also might have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship was with the Father. Now, the main verb is we proclaim. Now, any main verb, or, or transitive verb, a transitive verb is a verb that takes a direct object. You have to define what the direct object is. Normally in English, the way we write is we have subject, verb, direct object. I gave my children presents at Christmas. Presents. You gave what? You gave presents. That's the direct object. I'm ho- hopefully, if you have kids, that you're giving them presents at Christmas. So that's the direct object. That defines the object of the verb. We gave presents. Now, that's usually the way we structure it in English. Now, what John has done in the Greek, because you can do this in the Greek, because it is an inflected language, that means that word order is not important to the meaning of the sentence. Because the meaning is defined by its syntactical endings. So you can structure it any way you want to. I remember about halfway through my first semester in Greek when that suddenly uh, uh, became obvious to me. And I thought, oh, this, this is clear. So you can have, in English, you could, so you could say like in English, uh, presence, my children, gave I. Now that doesn't make sense in English. But it... To a Greek reader, that would make perfect sense, and what, you, you, what he would learn from that is that the object, presence, came, up, came first in this sentence because that's what's being emphasized. Now, that's what John has done here. The object of the verb is in the accusative case in the Greek. And what you have in verse 1 are four relative clauses... What was, heard, what was from the beginning, what, we've seen, what we heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and our hands handled. Four relative clauses that are neuter, accusatives. That new, because they're neuter, they can't refer to a person. Therefore, we know they're not talking about the person of Christ. They're referring to a thing, which would be the message. They are uh, accusative, which means that's where your object of the verb lies. So, we, the main verb, we proclaim to you what was from the beginning. But we also saw last time that you have this, this difficult phrase at the end concerning the word of life, which is, uh, uses the preposition peri, uh, translated concerning the word of life. And peri is associated with a verb, but you can't be, it's the message here concerning the message, but you can't see, behold, and handle a message. A message you can hear, you can't see it, behold it, or handle it. So concerning doesn't relate to what he just said. It has to relate to what he's going to say. Now, by taking a more strict translation of 1 John 1, 1 through 4, it comes across as a little complex 
in the English and you can miss its meaning. So I would retranslate this uh, differently in order for us to catch the main thrust in English of what John is saying. And this is how I would retranslate it. We proclaim to you, that's bringing right up to the front the main clause, the main verb of the, of the thought, which is in verse 3. We proclaim to you concerning the message of life. See, you can proclaim something related to a message. And that's what he's talking about is content. He's talking about doctrine. He's not talking about the man. He's talking about the message. He's talking about how crucial the message is to having fellowship. If you don't have the content right, if your doctrine isn't right, there can't be fellowship. Remember, that's the purpose clause. So that you can have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father. The point is, if you want to have fellowship with God, you have to have right doctrine. It's not it's salvation we enter into an eternal relationship with God. But if we're believing false doctrine, at the point that we're believing it and operating on it, we're... Um, we lose fellowship with God. And that's the problem that they have in their situation is these false teachers are coming in based, teaching uh, ideas that later became known as Gnosticism. And these ideas de-emphasize the true humanity of Jesus Christ. He wasn't truly a man. He just appeared as a man. It's sort of a, a cosmic illusion to make everybody think God had become a man. But, but because of their platonic background... Matter was considered as less than good or evil, so God really can't manifest Himself in, in real flesh because then the, uh, the perfect spirit would be uh, tied in or linked to matter, and He can't do that without becoming evil. So there's no way in the Greek mindset that God could really have become flesh. And so the, the true humanity of Jesus Christ was being rejected. Now, the point of all this is, if John is talking about how we understand the abundant life, that is, the uh, uh, message of the upper room discourse, abiding in Christ, and abiding is a key word, love is a key word in this whole epistle. If John's talking about living the Christian life, and the Christian life is set and and uh, exemplified for us by Jesus Christ's life during the period of His incarnation, and He really wasn't a man, He was just an illusion, then that destroys the whole witness of His life as an example, setting the precedent and the pattern for the spiritual life, and it's a subtle assault on the unique Christian life of the church age. That's the underlying issue here. And, we can't, and he's basically saying you can't abide in Christ. You can't have fellowship with God. You can't fulfill the highest commandment, which is to love others as Christ loved the church, if you deny the reality of the humanity of Jesus Christ. So the humanity of Jesus Christ is, is foremost in his thinking. And he starts off by using these relative clauses because he's emphasizing the empirical knowledge the disciples had of Jesus Christ and his message, that it wasn't an illusion, it was reality, he was incarnate in the flesh, and we are witnesses to it. The Bible is not just subjective information that somehow somebody had some religious experience and now we're writing about it. There is objective, verifiable, empirical data and we base everything on that. And we believe the message. So, 
it is rewritten, we proclaim to you, or I retranslate, we proclaim to you concerning the message of life, concerning the doctrine of the spiritual life, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our, eyes ha- and our hands handled, and the life was revealed, not manifested. It is phanerao in the Greek, which means to reveal, to illuminate. What we, what the life was revealed. Jesus Christ revealed in His life the, the dimensions of the spiritual life, the unique spiritual life of the church age. And the life was revealed, and we have seen and give our testimony. That brings in the legal aspect. It is a legal witness. And announced to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we announce to you also, that you might have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, that's a retranslation, and it gives us in English, I think, a better understanding of what John is emphasizing, what he is saying in these first three verses. He's making three points in this introduction. First is that the man is the message, and the message is the man. They are intrinsically and inseparably connected. You cannot have this man without this message. This man being the perfect Son of God, united with uh, undiminished deity, united with true humanity. You cannot have this man without this message. You cannot have this message without this man. The gospel is meaningless if Jesus isn't undiminished deity and true humanity. So the first thing that he's emphasizing is the man is the message and the message is the man. If you take away the humanity of Christ, you destroy the message. You destroy the content of the gospel. The second thing he's emphasizing is that the empirical evidence of the apostles' witness during the life of Christ, and specifically John's own personal contact. Remember, he was the man referred to as the the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is most intimately connected and associated with Jesus, and his witness substantiates the message. We didn't make it up. We all saw it, and we all give our witness to it. And then the third thing he's emphasizing in this introduction is that it is the message, the content of the gospel, that is the object of belief necessary for salvation and ongoing fellowship with God. The message, the content of the gospel, is the object of belief, and it is necessary to have the doctrine right, not only to be saved, you have to believe the gospel, that faith alone in Christ alone, it's not works, it's not circumcision, it's not the Mosaic Law, it's not moral reformation. You have to believe the right thing. That is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And that you also have to have right doctrine in order to maintain or to have continuing fellowship with God. Now, though the text begins with an emphasis on the empirical evidence and the importance of the empirical evidence, uh, since today is Christmas Eve, I am going to uh, shift the emphasis today. We'll talk about the empirical evidence and the purpose next time. But today we're going to talk about the thrust of verse 2, that the life was revealed, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life. In other words, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And this is the first point I mentioned, that the man is the message and the message is the man. Now, what do I mean by that? 
I'm going to say that so often that you'll repeat it in your sleep. First, Jesus Christ had to be true and genuine humanity and undiminished deity in order to accomplish the work on the cross. He had to be both true humanity and undiminished deity in order to accomplish His work on the cross. If He was not true humanity, then He could not have been our substitute. Like has to substitute for like. A true human being had to die as our substitute. He, as a man, had to bear our penalty. As sinless man, impeccable man, he was qualified to be our substitute. He had to be undiminished deity, because as undiminished deity, he possessed perfect righteousness. And it is that gift, that imputation of his perfect righteousness that is the basis for our salvation. We are not saved because we believe. We are saved because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and we are justified by faith. Faith is the means, it is not the cause. The cause is that we now have perfect righteousness and because God is perfect righteousness, perfect righteousness cannot have fellowship with relative righteousness, God then... Uh, justifies us, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. He sees our perfect righteousness and says, you are justified. He declares us to be just. It is a legal term. So his undiminished deity uh, gives us the perfect righteousness which saves us. Therefore, if you diminish his humanity, he's not really, not really true humanity on the cross, and in Gnosticism, the God Spirit left before He went to the cross, then there is no salvation. The second thing we emphasize in this is that Jesus Christ in hypostatic union sets the pattern and precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. That means that in His he, as true humanity, He is facing every temptation, every testing that you and I face, according to the writer of Hebrews. He is tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. That doesn't mean that he went through every single identical test that you and I go through. It means that he faced every category of testing in, in, in general. So that there is, he doesn't have to go through every identical test, every identical situation, but he faced the testing in every single area, just as we do, and yet he never sinned. He was impeccable. How did he do it? It wasn't just in his deity. He doesn't rely on his deity to solve the problems of life. He does it as a man relying upon the Holy Spirit and on Bible doctrine. That's what sets the precedent for the church age. See, in the, during the time of, of his life, during the time of the incarnation, the time of the hypostatic union on the earth, Jesus Christ is doing two things. First, he is fulfilling all of the requirements of the law. By his reliance upon God the Holy Spirit, he lives a perfect life, thus fulfills the law, qualifies himself to go to the cross. So he fulfills all of the mandates in the Old Testament. Second, by doing it on the basis of the Spirit of God plus the Word of God, he sets the precedent for how the believer in the church age is to live the spiritual life. It's on the basis of the filling of God the Holy Spirit plus the Word of God that the believer grows to spiritual maturity in the church age. So in his life he fulfills the Old Testament mandates and he sets the pattern and precedent 
for the church age, if he is not true humanity, facing those problems just as you and I do as a genuine human being, then it is all fraudulent and there is no precedence for the spiritual life in the church age. See, the spiritual life in the church age is not based on the spiritual life of the Old Testament. It's not based on the Mosaic Law. Christ fulfilled the law. He's the end of the law, Romans says. It is the church age spiritual life is based on the precedence of Christ living the spiritual life during the messianic dispensation, during the incarnation of Christ on the earth, when he faced all the trials, all the testings uh, in his life under the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, John is a little tricky here in the opening phrases, and he uses vocabulary. We have seen this so many times in John that he is a master of the use of vocabulary. He wants to kind of hit us in three different, from three different directions at one time, and he chooses words and phrases to do that. Now, what happens is that when you read commentaries or you listen to a lot of preachers, they will talk about the fact that in 1, 1 through 3, we're talking about Jesus Christ. Well, that's not what the grammar says. The grammar says you're talking about a message, not a man. But the point is, as we see in verse 2, that message, which is the message of life, the life is Christ. You can't separate them. But the, what we're talking about here is the message, not the man, but you can't have the message without the man. They are in, in, inseparably linked. John uses phrases like from the beginning and logos to cause our thinking to automatically go to John 1. Not First John 1, but John 1. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Because he wants us to be thinking about the person behind the message. And that you can't take the person away without destroying the message. For John makes it clear to us that life is intimately, intrinsically, and inseparably connected with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He makes three statements. I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. He identifies himself with life. The word am there is the Greek word verb, me, which is the English word or verb to be or is, which is called an equative verb. One thing you can do in grammar is if you have a, an is, a to be verb, you can substitute an equal sign. If you have I am tall, you can say I equals tall. And that is, that's the meaning of the sentence. So when Jesus says, I am the life, he says, I am equal to life. They are interchangeable in me. This is confirmed by John 1, 4, where John said, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. So in him, Jesus Christ is life. And it is that life that is the light of men that illuminates man. And that brings in what concept? Revelation. I want you to be impressed with how... This guy is absolutely brilliant because by going back to John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men, brings in the idea of revelation, which the idea of ephonorao or phonorao is illumination. So we're immediate, he's tying these things together because he wants us to see this intimate connection, that it is his life that illuminates us. It is what re- be, reveals God to us. John 5, 26. 
For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So life is in Christ. Not, it's not something separate. There's not some autonomous thing out there that's life. Life and Christ are intimately connected. First John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now the phrase, this one, refers back to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true God. That is a clear statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is undiminished deity. He is the true God and He is eternal life. So he concludes the epistle with what he begins the epistle with, and that is the identification of life with Christ and that we must be in Him. Now, one of the things that we're going to learn as we go through this, and we studied it in John 15. In fact, if you weren't here or you missed it, you need to go back and listen to those John 15 tapes. That provides the framework for understanding this epistle. Uh, John says that, that, that in Him is life. And in Him is a particularly, it's a phrase that is particularly unique to John. It is not to be taken as in Christ. That's a Pauline term. Paul talks about in Christ. John talks about in Him. And we will take the time when we get to that, that usage to show that in John's writings, in Him is not talking about positional truth. In Christ for Paul is positional truth. That is our eternal reality in Christ. But in John's writings, in Him is used, and Jesus talks about abiding in me. In Him and in me is a relational term. In Him is the top circle, or as we're seeing it now with the new diagram, the left circle. And in Christ, I mean, in me or in Him is the bottom circle or what is now the right circle. Okay, we had to change things up to fit the uh, new projector. But uh, in me is relational, in Christ is legal. And so when Paul talks about, or when John talks about in me or in him, he is talking about being in fellowship or not in fellowship. And, and that is important to understand. If you miss that, you will really throw off your whole understanding of the gospel, I mean, of, uh, of 1 John. So this emphasizes for us the whole doctrine of the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union is a technical uh, theological term that comes from the Greek word hypostasis. Hypostasis. Looks like this in the Greek. Hypostasis. H, rough breathing mark, H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S, which means essence or substance. So it's talking about the essence of God, that there is a union of essence, a union of being, uh, two things united together. And it describes the union of two natures, undiminished deity and true humanity in the one person of Jesus Christ. Two natures, one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity. When Jesus became man, He didn't lose any divine attributes. 
when Jesus was incarnate on the earth, there's not a mixture. They don't bleed into one another. There's not a mix of human and divine attributes in the person. They are distinct natures. They maintain their distinction. So He is true humanity and undiminished deity. Without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. Jesus Christ will always be in hypostatic union with humanity. The second person of the Trinity is united with true humanity forever and ever and ever, and thus he can be seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven right now. We see this exemplified in Hebrews 1.3. He, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the radiance, that is the flashing forth of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. He is everything God is and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Only true humanity sits down. Because He is seated at the right hand of God the Father in His humanity. His humanity is what went to the cross and died for us. Because He is localized in His humanity to the right hand of the majesty on high. This is just a side note for some of you. He cannot become localized in an ongoing communion service. Therefore, there is no physical presence of Christ in the Lord's table or in the Mass, which is the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. He can't be in heaven and then each time the Mass is celebrated, have his body become ubiquitous on earth. His humanity is localized to the right hand of the majesty because purification of sins is complete. Philippians 2, 5 through 9 is again the second most important passage on the hypostatic union. Have this attitude, this mentality in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, the Greek there is morphe, from which we get our terms like morphology or morphing, which has to do with a form, to use a modern slang from science fiction. Morph means a, a morphe means a, 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 but it's not physical form here. In Greek, tech, in Greek language, morphe referred in, in Platonism to the ideal, to the idea, the essence of a thing. So when Paul says, although he exists in the form of God, that should be translated in the essence of God. He had all of the attributes of God. He did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. That doesn't mean he gave anything up, but he, he voluntarily restricted the independent use of his attributes. It's the Greek verb kanao or kenosis, and this is a very famous debate between liberals and conservatives over the, the meaning of this word. It doesn't mean he gave up deity, but he voluntarily restricted the independent use of his divine attributes. And he took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness, schemati, which means the form, the physical form and shape of mankind, of a human being. He's true humanity. And being found in, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, the hypostatic union is necessary to have salvation. Now, let's look then at the doctrine of the Incarnation. Point number one, under the doctrine of the Incarnation, which we celebrate every year, 
on December the 25th, although we don't know when it actually occurred. It may or may not have been this general time of year, but this is uh, when, when traditionally we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. One definition incarnate comes from the Latin carne meaning flesh, meaning uh, matter, and it means to be made in flesh, that God became human flesh. That is the definition of the meaning of incarnation. The incarnation was not some afterthought of God's. The incarnation was determined by God in eternity past at what, was, what is called the Council of Divine Decrees, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a holy huddle billions and billions of years ago and laid out the plan for human history. It was first prophesied in the Bible in Genesis 3.15. There we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. A head wound is a fatal wound, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. God the Father is talking to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. There will be enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Her seed refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see the first indication that the the Messiah would be true humanity, her seed, from the seed of the woman. He, that is the Messiah, shall bruise you on the head, give you a fatal wound, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It would be a non-fatal wound. The cross was non-fatal because Jesus Christ had victory over death and rose from the grave on the third day. So there is a prophecy that the Messiah would be of the seed of the woman. The second major prophecy is Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when we find out that the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, his uh, early name before God changed it, Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, And so you shall be a blessing. Abram was to be the father of the Jewish race. Verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who treats you lightly I will curse. That's a corrected translation. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, it is as a seed of Abraham that all nations would be blessed. And that seed is defined in Genesis, I mean in Galatians chapter 3 as being the Lord Jesus Christ. Is further defined in four genera- or three generations later to be from uh, Judah. Ju- Abraham gave birth to Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob gave birth to Judah. Judah is the tribe, one of the twelve Jewish tribes from which the Messiah would come. Genesis 49.10, the scepter, that is the, the sign of a ruler, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is another name in the Old Testament designation of the Messiah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So now it has gone from seed of the woman to seed of Abraham to the tribe of Judah. It is further clarified in Second Samuel 7.12 in the Davidic Covenant. God promised David that Messiah would come from his lineage. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. 
So he would be seed of the woman, seed of Abraham from the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David. We get a further indication of the miraculous quality of his birth in Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born, or Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. That is genuine humanity. True humanity coming through a miraculous birth, virgin conception and virgin birth. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which in the Hebrew means God with us. So right here there is clear indication in the Old Testament that God would be united with humanity in the person of the Messiah. That the Messiah isn't just a man. The Messiah is to be a God-man. God with us, born through a uh, a birth, natural human birth process, though it would be a miraculous birth. And then Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us. That emphasizes humanity. A child will be born to us. The son will be given to us. Those first two lines are in uh, synonymous parallelism. It's poetry in the, uh, in the original Hebrew. And it is the second line mirrors the idea of the first. It emphasizes uh, true humanity. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, there are four titles here. These four titles are only applied to deity in the Old Testament, these designations. Only God is wonderful. He's Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and then... The third one is eternal father. That's a bad translation. The son is not the father. Then you would not have a trinity. In the Hebrew, it is father of eternity. It is a designation of his eternal attribute. So it should be translated, wonderful counselor, mighty God, father of eternity, prince of peace. And then further, the prophecies in the Old Testament define the birthplace of Messiah, seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, tribe of Judah, descendant of David, born miraculously through a virgin conception and virgin birth, given the designation of Emmanuel, God with us, and then in Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little among the clans of Judah, Bethlehem Ephrathah is a title name, an ancient name for the city of Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, a small, insignificant, out-of-the-way village. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So the emphasis on a birthplace in Bethlehem emphasizes humanity, but his goings forth are from the days of eternity. So once again you have undiminished deity and true humanity indicated in the Old Testament prophecies. So the Old Testament prophesies the incarnation. The fulfillment of these prophecies is given in Matthew chapter 1. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Matthew chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. This is Matthew's account of that first Christmas. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary 
had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, which is a euphemism for having sexual relations, before they came together, before they were married, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. What takes place, and the reason for the hypostatic union, or the virgin birth, is because the sin nature is passed on through the male. When Eve sinned, she was deceived, according to 2 Timothy 2, but Adam sinned willfully. So, he was the head of the household, the head of the human race, and so the sin nature is passed on through the male. Now, when, the, uh, when a woman ovulates, her egg has 46 chromosomes. It goes through a process called meiosis, which is a cleansing process that throws off and discards 23 chromosomes as polar bodies. This leaves a purified egg of 23 chromosomes, but you need 46 in order to have a human being. So the male sperm provides the other 23 chromosomes, and when the egg is fertilized, then you have the uh, beginnings of the biological life, the physical body of that human being, but it possesses a sin nature. In the virgin conception, God the Holy Spirit provides the 23 chromosomes and fertilizes the egg so that it has no sin nature. Because it has no sin nature, there is no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. See, when a person is born at the instant of physical birth, to that sin nature, God imputes Adam's original sin and we are born a sinner with this active sin nature and therefore guilty of Adam's original sin. But Jesus Christ had no sin nature, therefore there was no imputation of Adam's original sin, so he is born perfect just as Adam was created perfect so that he then lives a perfect life free from a sin nature. That is the purpose for the virgin conception and virgin birth. So, uh, Mary is found to be with child. It is the Holy Spirit that causes that miraculously to take place. And Joseph is uh, obviously a little distraught, perhaps, when he discovers that his young bride is... Mary was probably only 15 or 16 at the time. That was the typical age. Uh, They got married at that time, but then they usually didn't live much beyond about 40 or 50. Um... Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, which shows a lot about his character, he could have publicly put her off, could have shamed her publicly, but he doesn't want to do that. He wanted to do it secretly. And so while he's wrestling with these issues, verse 20, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord, this is not the angel of the Lord, like we studied in the first hour, which is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is just referring to another angel, an angel of the Lord, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, from the root from Joshua, Yasha in the Hebrew, which means to save. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, 
and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. When Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and took her as his wife, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, contrary to what some people teach, Mary and Joseph did have sexual relations after the birth of Jesus. She had four sons and two daughters, and uh, there is no such thing as the perpetual virginity of Mary. That flows from an old, just the impact of Platonism on early Christianity that somehow... And it's the same idea of Gnosticism, because the physical body, physical things are evil, therefore anything associated with it is evil, so sin by its nature is... I mean, sex by its nature must be evil because it involves a physical body. So therefore, for Mary to be continue to be righteous, she could never have had sex. Well, that just shows that, that some religious systems are loaded with pre-Gnostic ideas, and uh, we don't have time to develop that, but you can investigate that on your own later. Chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then it goes on, the next chapter outlines various, various prophecies. So Jesus is born... Uh, miraculous conception and birth in order to live out his life for the purpose of going to the cross. So the Bible gives us the results, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. That is, the eternal logos of John 1, 1 through 3, becomes flesh, true humanity, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Not the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration. That's not what John emphasizes, though John was there. But the glory displayed by a man who lived his life on the basis of the Word of God filled by the Spirit of God. That's how John emphasizes the glory of Christ throughout the whole Gospel. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is oriented to grace and oriented to doctrine, and that's the basis of His glory. That's the pattern for our glorification of God, is that we follow the pattern set by Jesus Christ. Romans 1.3, concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, and by a common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, almost sounds like John's use in 1 John, manifested, revealed in the flesh, was vindicated by means of the Spirit beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Jesus Christ is true humanity. Hebrews 2.14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is, the same flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Philippians 2 uh, five through nine, we have already gone through, and that brings us to the final purpose for the incarnation. It had two purposes that I've stated already. The first is salvation. Jesus Christ had to be true humanity to die as our substitute. But what is more important for this epistle is that Jesus Christ was true humanity, not just to die on the cross for our sins, but in order to exemplify for us and set the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. If he is not true humanity, then he could not have handled the problems, the testing, the temptations, the adversities that he faced in life on the same resources that we do. It would have been an illusion. It would have been false. 
but Jesus was true humanity in order to demonstrate for us the power of God the Holy Spirit so that no matter what we face in life, no matter what the problem is, no matter what the heartache, no matter what the testing, no matter how intense the temptation, Jesus Christ has faced it all and on the basis of the filling of the Spirit of God and the application of doctrine from the Word of God, Jesus Christ was able to face that yet without sin. If he was not true humanity, then it's all false. So John is emphasizing the true humanity of Christ sets the precedent for us. It exemplifies for us what fellowship with God is all about, what loving God and loving others is all about, and he is going to develop that as he develops the theme of the epistle. And therein he is going to, we're going to see a further development of all of the spiritual skills, which I call the stress busters, and how Jesus Christ set the precedent. In a sense, he built that soul fortress for us, one brick at a time, with the ex- exception of confession of sin and occupation with Christ. He demonstrated it for us so that just as he lived his whole life inside that divine soul fortress so that he could maintain consistent fellowship with the Lord and overcome any problem, we too have that same confidence, that same ability, those same spiritual skills that he has bequeathed to us so that we can live a life that glorifies God so that we can overcome any problem or adversity in life. And that's what we're going to develop as we go through First John. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that you have given us so much, not just salvation, but a unique spiritual life, and that Jesus Christ is the one who exemplified that for us. And it was done in a miraculous way through his virgin conception and birth and through the incarnation. And so, Father, we thank you for our Lord and our Savior and all that he has done for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that that right now they would make that sure and certain. All that is necessary is for you to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, to trust Him alone for your salvation. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of any other human factor. It is simply a matter of accepting the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we might be challenged by what we have learned, that we might look at Christ in terms of what He has established for us in this unique spiritual life, that we might be motivated to pursue spiritual growth, spiritual maturity for your glorification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.